This morning we are called into the presence of God. We are invited to come with joy and with thanksgiving, with music and with song, remembering that we worship a God who created the world, um, the God who spoke through his prophets from generation to generation, who led his people from captivity to freedom, who healed the sick, who fed the hungry, and was faithful even when faced with rejection. And it is this same God who wants all people to be drawn to his love and to his grace, to know his forgiveness and the joy of our salvation. So may we put aside the cares that we may have brought with us today here, all the tasks that loom before us yet this week, and join together in worship and in praise. Pray with me, will you? God, we invite you into this place this morning and into our hearts and into our minds, and we know that you love us, and in worship you come to us and you begin to cleanse us and change us and transform us into the people that we were meant to be. So we don't come looking for what's in it for me today, but to encounter a merciful and loving and forgiving God and to be changed. So meet us in a powerful way, we pray, in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, again, we're so glad to have you this morning here in worship with us. If you haven't already, pull out the connection card and fill it out. Let us know that you're with us. Um, this is so important for us to know that you are here with us. And, uh, you know, especially with guests uh, who are here in all of our services, uh, one of the statistics show us that, uh, that if, if, a, uh, if our regular attenders don't fill this out, sometimes guests won't either. So we'd really like to hear from all of you that you're with us today. So if you sign the front of the card, on the back there's room for prayer concerns or information you may want to share with our staff and you can drop it in the offering plate later in today's service. But we'd like to just um, get to know you and uh, if you're a guest with us, send you a, a short note and a gift in the mail this week and just thank you for coming and attending uh, Redeemer today. You know, I'm convinced that there are a lot of things that a church does that are good, um, but not critical to the mission of what Jesus hoped the church would be and do. And when you boil it all down, I think there's really only a handful of things that really ultimately matter. Today's message continues our teaching series that we've been in on 1 Thessalonians, the study of the New Testament book of 1 Thessalonians. And uh, this study's been called Living in Hope. And today we're wrapping up chapter two of this uh, key little book in the New Testament. But I want to share with you today from just four verses in, this, uh, in the book of First Thessalonians. But it gives us a window uh, into the heart of the Apostle Paul and uh, how he felt about his, these believers in the church at Thessalonica. It's really a powerful lesson about what's ultimately important in this life and how important it is that we invest ourselves in those things that last beyond us, that last forever. We'll get to that in a few moments, but I want you to pray with me before we do. God of wonder, we come into your presence again today seeking your affirmation, seeking your blessing. We are fully convinced that you call us to live in covenant with you as a disciple of Jesus Christ. We're also convinced that we bear your image and you've given us minds to discern your purpose for our lives and hearts to reveal your love and a will to choose to live for you each day. 
sometimes we are amazed in the grace, by the grace at which uh, you surround us and how you love us even when we don't deserve it. So God, teach us today how to walk in step with you, denying ourselves and taking up your cross and in order to follow you wherever you lead us. Accept our worship and our praise, which we offer in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I want to invite you to listen to these words that came in a letter. Dear Pastor, I don't think you would expect a message from me, but I felt God directing me to send this to you. It's kind of hard to find my words, and I feel a bit awkward, but here it goes anyway. Jesus spoke to my heart tonight, and it has been quite a while since I've listened. I have ignored his calling for a couple of years now. It is truly amazing the way I was taken off guard. Years ago, I accepted Christ into my heart. At first, I wanted to do his will and live a Christian life, but I've slipped quite a bit since then. I wanted to experience all that I was told not to do, and I did. I thought I was happy, but inside, I was crying out for help. I latched on to a group of friends that weren't exactly following the right path. The friendships quickly died, then I joined another group of friends that had an even worse effect on my life. I thought they were true friends, and again, Christ disagreed. I didn't realize it till now. I was stuck pretty much friendless this year, living on my own. I couldn't understand what was wrong with my personality and why it was so hard to keep friends. I now understand that God had a plan to destroy those dangerous relationships. I asked God to take me back tonight, and I've not stopped crying since. There is a song by the Christian group Jars of Clay which really hit home for me, and part of its words in that song was, I want to fall in love with you, God. I don't know if I ever really fell in love with him, but for once I have a true desire to do so. I guess I'm asking you to pray for me because I don't want to lose this desire. I want to change, and I want to do God's will. I know true happiness comes from seeing Jesus, and I want a clear picture. It is so hard to be alone, but if I put Christ first, he will be all that I need. I am very stubborn, and it has taken me a long time to get to this point. I don't want to hit rock bottom again. I'm scared, but at the same time excited to see what he has planned for me. Now, as you can hear, the words of this letter are brutally honest, aren't they? I asked God to take me back tonight, and I have not stopped crying since. If I put Christ first, he will be all that I need. Those two sentences contain a world of truth that we all need to hear. As I reflect on this letter, it occurs to me that it might have been written by a lot of people that I know. Change a detail here or there, and it might be one of a hundred personal stories. And beneath the pain, I find the, the letter very hopeful because it is based on one of the most fundamental insights of the Christian faith, the idea of a 
of personal redemption. When God is involved, even the worst situations in our life can be turned around. You see, direction makes all the difference. It doesn't matter where, where you've been, only where you are and where you plan to go from here. With God, all things are possible. Finally, the letter speaks about the awesome power of relationships for good or for evil. I find that many Christians never fully understand that no relationship stays static. Relationships are like rivers that continually flow this way and that way. And like the letter writer, we all have relationships that either pull us up or drag us down. The Apostle Paul understood both sides of this truth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33, Paul says, bad company corrupts good character. Eventually, we all become the people, like the people we spend time with. For better or worse, our friends rub off on us and we on them. So our text this morning addresses the positive side of this truth. It reveals the power of a good relationship to lead people from earth to heaven. So in doing so, we catch a glimpse of the difference it makes when we invest ourselves in the lives of other people. And although this passage is quite brief, each verse says something important to us. Before we begin, let's remember that the Apostle Paul stayed in Thessalonica, where this church that he had founded and, and, and helped to establish for a period of only about three to six weeks. And in that time, he had, uh, this was the first Christian church in this entire area. But because of some intense Jewish opposition, he was forced to leave town for his own safety. But he always planned to return someday to finish the job that he had started. However, because he had delayed in his return, his opponents whispered, a lot of slanders about his character. Some of the new believers had become confused. Some began to doubt Paul's motives. If he loved us, why did he leave us? And why doesn't he come back to see us again? But these four verses are a window into Paul's heart. If you thought the Apostle Paul was some sort of cold and austere, remote, unfeeling kind of guy, read these verses and think again. This passage is like a paragraph from a love story. Here the great apostle bears his heart to his readers. First of all, Paul explains that this was a temporary situation. And I want you to look at verse 17 of chapter 2. Dear brothers and sisters, after we were separated from you for a little while, though our hearts never left you, we tried very hard to come back because of our intense longing to see you again. When Paul says we were separated from you, he uses picturesque language that literally means when we were made orphans. So deeply had he attached to these Thessalonians that to him it felt like part of his own flesh and blood had been taken from him. And clearly he had planned to come back. 
and visit them again. He left under pressure from the Jewish opposition, but he fully intended to come back and to preach again and teach there again. And in fact, he says that he had already made many attempts to return, but had been stymied by the opposition. Secondly, he had not returned, he says, because of satanic opposition. Verse 18, we wanted very much to come to you, and I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. Now, when Paul says Satan prevented us, he uses a military metaphor for an army that sets up a roadblock in order to impede the enemy. That's exactly how Paul felt. Because at every turn, he tried to return to Thessalonica, but he ran headlong into some kind of roadblock. So what exactly did Paul mean, and how did Satan stop him? If you think about it, he must have been referring to some ongoing problem that kept him from returning to Thessalonica. We can't be sure of all the details, but we know that Jewish opponents followed him from city to city, opposing him and spreading lies about his ministry. And in Paul's mind, preaching the gospel was the most important thing in the world. Therefore, anyone who opposed his preaching was actually doing the work of Satan. I don't think we need to uh, inject the demonic uh, demons into this story, except as they maybe work through the minds of unbelievers to stir them up in opposition to the gospel. So the satanic was more about the roads that were being blocked to actually doing ministry. So that explains why Paul had uh, not returned to Thessalonica. He wanted to, but Satan, working through hostile unbelievers, had stopped him time and time and time again. But that still raises an important question. How did Paul feel about these new converts? Did he love them as much as maybe converts from other churches that he had established? That brings us to the third point, which is about a heavenly coronation. Look at verse 19. After all, what gives us hope and joy and what will be our our uh, proud reward and crown as we stand before our Lord Jesus when he returns. It is you. In these few words, we have a delightful glimpse into Paul's heart. How did he feel about these followers? They were his hope because he kept thinking about what God was going to do through them. They were his joy, both now in the present and in the future in heaven. They were his crown. The word refers to a wreath of leaves given to the winner of a race. His reward in heaven would be the pleasure of seeing all of these new Christians there standing together with him. And that brings us to the final part of this passage, which is, the earthly celebration. Look at verse 20. And yes, you are our pride and our joy. He's saying not just in heaven, but right now, you are the most important thing in the world to us. We think about you day and night. We pray for you. We never stop telling people how proud we are of you. Now, every new parent understands exactly what Paul means. What happens when a baby's born? We can't wait to tell the good news, right? We have pictures, we have statistics, we have stories about how, you know, she has her daddy's chin 
and her mother's eyes and how smart she is already and how it doesn't matter what the doctor says, we know that she smiled at us on that first day. She's the smartest, best-looking, cutest baby ever born, and we've got pictures to prove it. That's exactly how Paul felt about these Thessalonians, even though he was separated from them, and even though he couldn't return right now, they were always on his heart, they were always in his thoughts and in his prayers. So what is this passage teaching us? We can summarize, I think, this lesson very quickly by saying that God's will for our life will often involve times of delay and disappointment. Even a great leader like Paul found that not all of his prayers were answered in the way he thought they would be. That fact ought to encourage us when we face delays and disappointments in our life. We should also make the point that Paul was God's man in God's place, doing God's work in the power of God's spirit. He was the right person in the right place at the right time with the right message. And yet when he tried to go back to Thessalonica, he couldn't do it. In spite of all of his best efforts, the door of opportunity remained closed. Had he sinned? No. Was he out of God's will? No. Was God punishing him for something? No. He was exactly where God wanted him to be. And yet he felt orphaned. He felt alone. God's will is sometimes like that, even for us. We will feel very alone doing the thing that God has called us to do. But this passage also reminds us, I think, that Satan is alive and well on planet Earth. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, it calls Satan the, a roaring lion who prowls the earth seeking those he may devour. Pretty strong language. Satan not only hates God, he also hates everyone who does the work of God. He stirs up trouble for anyone who will stick their neck out and stand up for Jesus. I will tell you that if you have no enemies, it may be because you aren't doing much for the Lord. Even Jesus said, beware when all people speak well of you. Here's the reality. We may face opposition, and that may come at work, may come from a critical colleague, may come from a classmate or a friend or a teacher or a neighbor or a relative or maybe even our own children or spouse. Satan's primary strategy against the church is to discourage us by stirring up opposition so that we will stop spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. Some years ago, Christian author and speaker Josh McDowell wrote a sobering message called Tolerating the Intolerable. And in it, he discusses how toleration has replaced justice as the primary American virtue. And he says, tolerance today means that every view of truth and morality is equal to every other view. And if you dare to tell someone that what you are doing is wrong, what they are doing is wrong, you are going to be branded as an intolerant bigot. Beginning with the brave new world of the 1990s, he says, everything was right and nothing was wrong. 
And then he quotes one educator who said that the public schools must become one of the places that educate students to be intolerant of intolerance. But who is the most of all intolerant in the eyes of the secularist in our culture today? And the answer is we are. Christians, because we believe in a creator who established some absolute moral standards in, the message, uh, in this message, Josh predicted that we would see a major cultural shift in this country uh, in which anyone who desire, dares to speak out for God or against evil will risk being ostracized or publicly humiliated. And I think we've already seen some of that prediction come true. So we will continue to face some tough decisions in the day, days ahead. Satan's strategy has always been to stir up opposition to the church so that we will be intimidated into silence or compromise. It was true in the first century. It's been true ever since. Paul also speaks in this passage about heavenly rewards. And I'm not sure that many Christians today know very much about heavenly rewards, even though the New Testament has a lot to say on the subject. And if I could summarize the biblical teaching in a few words, it would go like this. No one who lives for Christ will ever feel cheated when we finally get to heaven. If we live for Christ in this life, we will never feel cheated when we get to heaven. Salvation is always by grace through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Heaven is a free gift that cannot be earned. We don't deserve it, but it's a gift. But when we get to heaven, we will be judged based on the life we live after we commit our life to Jesus Christ. And in that day, some people will see all that they have lived for here on earth go up in smoke. Others will receive great rewards, which are called crowns in the New Testament. And I believe there will be many crowns given, some for faithfulness, some for faithful, humble service, others for those who were martyred for the faith. I'm not sure of all the details about our rewards, but this much is clear to me. No one who lives for Jesus Christ in this life will ever feel cheated when we get to heaven. No one will ever say, I should have spent more time building up my empire on earth. Now finally, this passage speaks emotionally about the issues of ultimate values. You know, a while back I heard a speaker who begins every talk with this question. Do you know why God put you where you are right now? Do you know why God put you where you are right now? I asked that question lots of times when I'm coaching uh, a church and meeting with a leadership team. Do you know why God put you in this place, on this corner, in this community? It's a tough question to answer. Have you ever wondered about that? Why has God put you right where you are today? Let me turn the question in another direction. What will you have to show for your life? when you stand before Jesus Christ? A good job, college degree, money in the bank, lots of friends, big reputation, successful career, the praise of other people? See, if that's all we've got to show for our life, then we really don't have much. Sooner or later, 
sooner than we think, we will all leave this life. And all the things of this life won't matter anymore. Someone else will have our money and our job. And our fame will fade and our glory will disappear and everything that we own today will belong to somebody else. And we will eventually be forgotten except by those people who stumble across our gravestone a hundred years from now and say, I wonder who that was. Howard Hendricks says it this way, only two things in this world are eternal, the word of God and people. And it only makes sense to build your life around those things that last forever. The word of God will last forever. We will last forever, either in heaven with our creator or far away from God's presence. But everything else in, that we have and we know of in this world will disappear. When asked by a job interviewer about his goal in life, one man who was a Christ follower responded this way, my goal in life is to go to heaven and to take as many people as possible with me. The Apostle Paul would heartily agree with those sentiment, that sentiment. Some years ago, I heard someone say that whenever we are faced with a major decision, we ought to be asking ourselves, what difference will this make 10,000 years from now? You see, most of the things that we worry about in life won't matter in three weeks or three months or three years because we often focus on what's trivial and we forget to pursue the eternal but 10,000 years from now, we'll be glad we invested ourselves in our lives in serving Jesus. See, the only investments that last forever are the investments we make for Jesus Christ. Our life may be secure as far as anything in this world is secure. Our financial portfolio may be growing. Our children may all turn out good. Our marriage may last for 50 years. We may have a retirement plan so we don't have to fear old age. We may have the very be the very picture of health, and we may have a job, a good job, and a bright future. But what about our Lord Jesus Christ? The scripture says that he is one day coming back to earth. What have we invested for that day? When everything earthly is left behind, will there be anything left? Those who choose to follow Christ will never regret giving our heart to Jesus, offering him the very best that we have, serving the Lord with our whole heart, mind, and spirit, and sharing God's grace and love with others. Several years ago, I'm told the Mercedes-Benz Automobile Company ran some ads describing a brand new brake technology. They had developed, they had patented this, and although they owned the rights to the technology, they freely shared it with other car companies in the interest of promoting safety. And the tagline of the ad contained these sobering words, some things in life are too important not to share. See, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have been given the best news in the world. And it's too important not to share with the people around us. So may God help us to invest our lives in the things that will last forever. Pray with me, will you? Father, we thank you for these eternal truths that speak so practically to our hearts. And I pray that by your grace, you will help us to apply these things to our life today in very specific ways. Thank you 
that we do none of this to earn your love, but we just seek to enjoy your love and to enjoy your power, to be in fellowship with you and enjoy uh, and know the joy of your presence. God, we commit this day and these truths to your grace, for it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.